Beth, thank you for joining us. Um, here we are sitting in the, the foyer of the magnificent Metacana Cinemas and... Uh, worst places to be? Th there's definitely worst places to be and as, as when uh, Rachel and I moved out of Wellington, well we came up here on holiday many years ago and um, it, was, it was one of those classic Wellington wintry days where I, was, <laughs> I think Rachel got blown off her feet and I was speaking to the guy I was working with at the time and I said, if you could live anywhere in New Zealand, where would you live? And he said, oh, I really like it around the Walkworth area. I mean, you know, we never heard of the place. So we came up here and we instantly fell in love. And uh, Matakana Cinema was one of, the, one of the reasons, just having this facility in the, in the village. So thanks to Matt and Dan for letting us sit in the corner. Well, um, I've been coming here my whole life and there was nothing other than uh, garage, Campbell's Garage on the corner there. And I think there was a sawmill on this site here. Yeah, it, yeah. And the store and the, and the butchers. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an amazing transformation and all credit to, to Richard and Christine and other local business people in the area for, for giving mm. it that lease of life, I guess. So look, first and foremost, how on earth did you decide to pursue a life in politics? Well, I, I didn't actually, do, um, it wasn't a conscious decision, actually. You just find yourself drifting into it and then um, pushed forward by others, mostly. So... Um, I was perhaps more politically minded than I realised at the time. I had a very political grandmother and mother. And in my early years of my marriage, I married a farmer. Um, you know, there were a lot of things happening politically that were affecting farming. So we did sort of take a lot of notice of, of uh, governments and policy. And to cut a long story short, as soon as the Act Party came along, I saw that this is a party that was going to uh, address some of the concerns that we had. So that would have been back in the mid-90s. And I joined the party nearly straight away. But I didn't really become actively involved until um, my kids were a bit more independent. So in the mid-2000s, I started going along to the odd meeting and, you know, doing a bit of reading. Um, and it was in 2008, or just after the 2008 election, when the local Rodney candidate uh, had made the decision that she wouldn't run again in 2011 and looked to recruit her replacement. So um, that's why I mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't pursue it. I was um, shoulder tapped to see if I would run. So I did run in 2011, um, list only, didn't ask to be ranked. Uh, but in 2014, I agreed, I agreed to be ranked as a candidate and found myself uh, catapulted to number four. So, um, so just before we go any further, because yeah. there's going to be <clears throat> there's going to be lots of people in this election who it's their first time voting, don't maybe completely understand the system. Um, what's the difference? What does ranked and listed and all of these type of things mean to people? So a party puts up um, a range of candidates, they may um, stand them in seats or they may put them on their list only because under the MMP system you, uh, you, can, you, have to, you cast two votes obviously, one for your electorate candidate and one for the party. Um, whether candidates are running in an electorate or list only, they all have a position of, of uh, ranking which each of the parties has their own method of doing of ranking those candidates. It's not just simply a matter of who's the smartest and uh, better looking um, as, as you go down. It is, it's, quite, it's quite a strategic exercise, choosing your leader, your deputy leader, um, and then the subsequent candidates that you hope to enter parliament with them because the whole dynamic uh, and skills um, sharing has to work, whether you're talking about three, four, five, six, and so on candidates. So as a candidate, we're asked, um, would you like to be ranked? Uh, because our particular party only ranks up to 20. If you'd like to be ranked, you go through a series of interviews with the selection panel, um, and, and then a, a decision is made as where you will be on the list. If you choose not to be ranked, from 21 downwards, and we have 55 candidates running, from 21 downwards is purely alphabetical. So there's a lot of jokes made about where people are on the list okay. between 21 and 55 in our party, when really it is just alphabetical after that. And of course, the, the party vote is uh, what makes up the uh, representation in Parliament. So whether the candidates that, um, or whether the members of Parliament are taken from electorate seats or list, the, it is the, only the party vote that counts. So um, if, uh, if, for example, you get 10% uh, of, the, of the vote, you get 10% of the 
uh, MPs. So in this case, 120 seats in Parliament. Um, in a perfect world, if no one wasted their vote and there was nothing like a, a, an overhang, which is caused by parties who um, <coughs> perhaps min, win more seats, more share of seats in electorates than they have share of party vote, mm -hmm. if neither of those two things happened, 10% of the vote would return 12 candidates. I happen to be number 12 on the party list, so 10% is <laughs> a really nice round number for me to remember. <laughs> okay, that's brilliant. And look, uh, it's, it's, and um, I know you from, from how active you are on, on local um, social media groups and mm. um, I always bump into people who always have a good thing to say about you because um, you, you proactively get things done, you, you answer people's queries, you act as a bridge sometimes between local people and the council. And it's really refreshing to see that. So <clears throat> that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you along as well. And um, I, I, from your perspective, and I'm not going to get too much niggly into policies at the moment, but from your perspective, what Where's the greatest amount of clear water between ACT and the, 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 the sort of Labour and National and Green, if you like? Well, I think everyone wants uh, similar outcomes. Hmm. But it's the contest of ideas around um, how you get there. So I think everyone that stands for, um, for election does it for the right reasons because it's not, about the, uh, it's not about ego or pay packets because there's a, so much work that goes into it that uh, probably members of the public don't see. Candidates give up years and years, in some cases, volunteering um, for a cause before they actually get elected, if they ever do. Um, all of that's, you know, unpaid time. So I think what is really clear is that everyone goes into it for the right reasons. Everyone wants um, a better New Zealand. Um, everyone wants, uh, you know, there to be no children living in damp, squalid conditions, no one going hungry, um, everyone to have a job, everyone to have um, access to a fantastic education. Um, so that's, that's where we all have something in common. But as I say, as a contest of ideas, uh, that's what politics is about how we get there and uh, and that's where the differences lie. Hmm. So from your perspective are there any real substantial clear differences between yourself and <clears throat> say National or Labour? Substantial differences between us and National uh, would be that um, we mean what we say and we say what we mean. Um, Okay. We, we, don't, uh, we don't do populism, um, right. we don't do pork barrelling. So you'll never hear um, an ACT Party policy that promises to spend money on a particular thing, hmm. uh, which is, you know, vote buying or appeasing a certain electorate. The ACT Party's a party of principle and we look at issues from the ground up. Um, what, is the, um, what are the public policy settings that are creating uh, this undesirable outcome and what can we do to fix them at the base um, and, and then work towards a better outcome from there? Um, national, I think, um, they're similar to us in a lot of ways, but they are a little more populist and it's, it's not really even their fault. It's actually, it's actually a, a fault of MNP. Right. Um, the whole the whole MMP system requires that the major parties are trying to get at least fifty percent of the vote. So therefore, they uh, they will they will move quite quite into the centre, straddle that centre line to, mm. to to get their share of you know to get that fifty percent. And to do that, inevitably, they make uh, you know promises to spend money on particular things. And whether there's a lot of science behind that or not is irrelevant because the average voter just hears the message and votes on that basis. Mm. So in that respect, that's why we think National and Labour are actually closer together because they're both going for that centre ground. Mm. Whereas we'd like to stick to principle um, and our principles are that the government isn't the answer to everything. Individuals should be empowered um, and individuals, business, communities need, need to be more empowered to do things for themselves. We shouldn't be looking to the government to solve every problem. Um, in fact, you know, 
we should be more aspirational uh, because if we look to the government to solve every problem, we, what, we will what we will create is a very sort of mediocre, um, middling uh, results in basically any policy area. When you've got, uh, you know, private sector individuals that have got, uh, you know, great innovative minds on them, um, you're going to get some slightly different um, outcomes and maybe things will happen sooner um, and quicker and, and better. Whereas I think the, uh, what we would call the, you know, see as being left of us, anything much left of us, um, thinks that the government needs to solve all the problems, um, that they do this through taxing and wealth redistribution and the government picking the causes and the winners and spending, that, spending taxpayers' money, whereas we would prefer to see people keep more of the, the money that they earn because it's important that everyone's efforts make a difference. And so if you go to school, attend school, get good grades, get a job, transfer those skills to a career, you know, so you've got, got qualifications and you earn and you pay tax, then you save and then you invest, that that journey of, um, that, that journey is, is an, of effort that you have made, invested in yourself, must make a difference to you as an individual. Mm. Whereas uh, the, what we think the, the left sees is that everyone should have an equal outcome. Um, and what, what's that, what that's saying to people is that there is no there is no need to better yourself because you'll be looked after by the welfare state. So is, is there argument for an equal, uh, an equal outcome or just an equitable opportunity and chance? Equal opportunity. It's, it's, it's ha everyone having access to the same opportunity. And we're really passionate about that, mm. particularly in education, because look, education is the key to, to it all. Um, and that's why we had our um, charter schools policy, our partnership schools policy, is giving everyone access to a quality education. Um, that's the basis of uh, success for the rest of your life. Mm. But there again, I suppose, <clears throat> there's, there's a large difference between equality and equity, I guess. And, um, you know, uh, and, and, you know I, I am very pro-libertarian pro on, on, on a lot of things, and probably in life in general. Um, you know, I, I, I hate sandbite culture, I hate extreme wokeness as much as I <laughs> hate extreme fascism. Mm. I think both mm. anything in the extreme is a, is a fairly unhealthy standpoint. But I guess libertarianism, I suppose it's fair to, to class acts principles as very libertarianism. Well, fairly, fairly, you know, libertarian. Um, Probably more. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't go in for the labels so much. I don't mm. think they mean a lot to a lot of people, and I couldn't give you a clear definition myself mm. on so what some of the labels are. But I think the the term is perhaps more correctly classical liberal. We do have libertarians in our party. That's so true. how would you different? How would you distinguish? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you sort of walked into that one, Beth. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, no, no. This is where look, look. If I do, if I do one of those, you know, compass tests, <laughs> one day I can come out libertarian, and the next day I can come out classical liberal. And I, even I myself, sometimes have difficulty in understanding what did I answer differently today. I, look, I couldn't, I couldn't give you a clear explanation of that. Plenty of people could, but as I say, because I don't pay too much attention to the labels, I haven't looked too much into the, um, you know, strict definitions of any of them. Um, you know, government has has uh, a responsibility to, you know, just to, pr to protect our rights, but not to assume our responsibilities. And there's too many, um, there's too many ministries and departments set up that are there to more or less, you know, interfere with people's individual freedom and choice. So we would like to reduce the size of government. When you reduce the size of government, and that's not just about like numbers of MPs, it's to reduce the bureaucracy, reduce the number of ministries. You reduce the cost that it takes to run that, and therefore you need to you, you take less tax from people. And that means that people's efforts, as we talked about before, will make more of a difference because they'll get to retain more of the fruits of their labour and with that have more choice as to how they spend it on themselves and their families and the things that they care about. 
Um, so that's probably a pretty fundamental um, principle. There are, there are a lot of areas where we can make savings, where we don't need to be taking money, a dollar from one person, churning it through a bureaucracy and turning, uh, you know, coming out with 30 cents or whatever it might be um, in return. That's, not, that's just not a great use of taxes when people could, could be empowered to uh, do a lot more for themselves. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's, the, that's probably the underlying principle, is that we don't need government to be doing as much as it does. So we don't, it does, it's not about cutting spending, it's about putting, putting uh, money and choice and decisions back in individuals' hands um, and allowing them to thrive and innovate and create their own solutions. Um, what tends to happen is uh, the left uh, sees that taxing people more allows them to spend more, um, but it's not an efficient use of, of money to tune it through, to tune it through the system. Yeah, and, and, the, and, and understanding what the correct role of government is. We don't want government overreach. Um, and I think everyone experiences that at times, you know, um, and it doesn't matter where they, where they sit politically. I do a lot of work, you know, with local board, with community groups, and some of them are, you know, um, environmental um, groups that probably are quite uh, left-leaning or gr green voting, but even they find that the, um, the restrictions and the regulations are over the top and don't allow them to do what they want to do. You know, they just want to volunteer in a park or a reserve, they want to cut a track, they want to take some weed trees out, but health and safety regulations have actually made that more and more difficult for them to do. So even they you know, are of the opinion that government has got too big, uh, there's too much overreach, and it's really stifling people's, um, you know, pioneering spirit that, you know, New Zealand's built on. Um, so that is, that is why we have a policy around education that gives everyone an opportunity to um, obtain a first-class ed education by putting power back into parents' hands, putting the money with the child and... Uh, creating more choice and, so, and more accessibility to education so that you're not locked into your zone if you've got postcode, you know, some people, there's postcode poverty, so that's... So you're saying, let's say there's an allocated fee of X for that child's education? Yes, 250000 for their lifetime okay. to be so drawn down, um, I think it's about 18000 per year can be drawn down for their lifetime, and that goes right through to tertiary apprenticeships, um, you know, trade qualifications that everyone would have that amount of money and could choose to go to a state school, private school, partnership school, independent school, any school that uh, they thought was going to engage um, the child at the best and that they'll get the best results from. So education and the other thing is housing. Now we know that we have a housing shortage, we have a housing crisis um, and that 50% of uh, people's incomes is going towards housing, and now when you're not earning very much, um, that is too much, it's too much for a family to bear, they end up piling more, more people into the same house to try and make it affordable, then you get people living in cramped conditions, um, it becomes insanitary, so you know, the, it's the cost of housing, and the reason the housing is so high is it's purely supply and demand, we do not have enough houses, um, so we need to build more. Now, how many governments have been talking about this, consecutive governments have been talking about this and haven't achieved the goal? The problem is that the Resource Management Act has ground um, at things to a near halt. And I see it on the lo in the local government side. I have so many uh, constituents come to me because they are trying to subdivide a piece of land or get a building underway and it is literally taking two to three years to get a spade in the ground. And that is just far too long. So we need to look at, you know, why is it taking so long? Why is it so expensive? That means that we need to scrap the, the, the Resource Management Act, certainly as far as urban development goes, and replace it with a new, uh, new set of rules that actually allow building to happen, are more, is more permissive of building, so that we can get houses built sooner, um, at a lower cost, and, uh, and, and more, and look whether they're high density, medium density, outside the metropolitan urban limit, we need a range of housing options for people to bring that cost down and so that 
It's not taking 50% of someone's income to house them and their family. It should be more like 25% as it was pre-1991. Um, and then they have uh, more, more available income to, to spend on other things that they need, you know, feed, feeding the family, educating them, clothing them. That's really interesting. So, so let's stay on housing while we're there, because one of the um, one of the interesting things that I read was Act's proposal to actually remove a lot of the resource management process away from local council, council and government. Yes, yes. Um, and take some of the risk away from local council and government by putting some kind of private insurance in place for for the building process. Yes. Can you just go into a little bit more uh, detail? So we, we would replace um, the um, consenting process and, and inspection process um, that currently undertaken by local authorities with a um, private system. So it would remove that part of the building process uh, into, a, into a system that would be competitive. So things would happen faster. They wouldn't be so costly because it would be competitive, and um, the they they would you know the consents would be issued much much sooner, and it would that it would have to be underwritten by private insurers. Now, no private insurer is going to insure your house build if it's not up to scratch. So it just removes that uh, from the bureaucracy, which, as we know, is just it's just taking too long. Time is money when you when you're building and developing, putting it into private system which will be more competitive and uh, and faster turnover and would really cut down on the costs and the time involved in building a home okay but that that insurance will be compulsory yes that insurance would be compulsory that's correct yes and you see that so would, would that be a, a one-off insurance would that be a one-off cost at the time of build or is it an ongoing cost Look, I haven't got the detail on that, but yeah. I imagine it's for the lifetime of the building. Right. Mm. So we're not talking about uh, a big programme to, to build new social housing or anything like that. We're just saying... Well, we don't need to, because once you free up, <laughs> once you free up the process, you will have social housing and private development happening quickly. The problem we've got at the moment is the re one of the reasons Kiwi Build failed, and it was doomed to failure, is that the only way it could possibly build homes any faster or cheaper than the private sector is for cut its cut governments or councils own corners around consenting because it's just not possible to build them any faster or cheaper because of those regulations no it's just that you know, housing is one of my one of my real passions and it's um well i mean it's one of my passions too because when i was 21 years old i built my own house yeah literally built my own house from from the ground up and I was able to do it, my husband, then husband and I were able to do it cheaply uh, because there weren't so many restrictions in place. You know, I, I tell this story and people don't think it's, you know, believable, but, but this is exactly what happened. We were, we were newly married, uh, his parents were farmers, they had land, they said you can build a house on the farm, literally pick wherever you like, choose a place on the farm that you'd like to build a house and you can build a house there. That is what we did. There was, no, there was nothing preventing us from doing that. They then said, we've got some trees here that could come down. There was some pine, some macrocarpa. There was a rimu and kaikatea that were getting, getting old and needed to come out. We didn't have to ask for permission to go and cut those trees down. We cut those trees down. We took those trees to the local mill. The mill said to us, if you kids want to save some money on milling this timber, you can work here in the mill as it comes off the saw. And that's what we did. As the timber came off the saw, we stacked it, filleted it, forklifted it into the treatment, came back several weeks later, pulled it all out, turned it over, put it back into treatment. You couldn't do that now. We dug the piles by hand with a spade and we shot the levels with a hose with water with the you know, water in the house. We had, took a book out of the library that said that how to build your own house. Now, we, that's when I say we literally built that house from the ground up. We took our plans into the local council. From memory, it was $200, what was then Whangarei District Council. But how would a private insurance company let you do that now? Well, they would just have to be satisfied that everything we were doing 
was of a standard. So they would have an, they would they would uh, send out a, a building inspector just like the council does. But so my purpose of that story is that, you know, every step that we took to be able to build our first home really affordably, um, and it went further than that, once it was finished, his, his parents were able to cut that piece of land off and, and um, give it to us after about five years of watching us hard slog. Um, it was very good of them. But, you know, every step of that way, has, that's been removed. Those, that choice has gone. You can't, it's been legislated out of existence. I don't know a young couple that would even contemplate trying to build a house like we did back then in 1986 uh, because the hurdles you'd have to jump through are just would be far too high. I mean, I suppose, you know, the, 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 there is provision for South building still in the, in the, in the building. Yes, it comes, comes with a lot more um, uh, restrictions on it now. You have to have it uh, signed off by a uh, licensed um, builder. Um, the consent fees, though, are massive. Um, you need a consent for every little thing. You know. Is that the same threat? I'm only really familiar with, obviously, Auckland, but is, is that a similar picture threat to hold New Zealand? Um, I believe so. Look, it's it, it does appear to have a degree of interpretation by local authorities as to... Um, you know, to what degree they, they interpret the Act and enforce it and char uh, charge for that service. Um, but generally, uh, it, it has become, um, over subsequent decades, more and more restrictive. And that would, be, that would be right throughout New Zealand. So we've ended up in a situation where we've really restricted our house supply um, by having an Act that we have tried to tweak and patch you know, so many times over and it's not working and it's time to wipe the slate clean and start again. And I, and I think that's that's a common message through everybody. Yeah, I, well, you know, yeah. it's been our policy for um, a long time and um, gradually uh, just about all, all the other major parties are coming to the same conclusion. They they can see the folly of it. So that's, that's great. You know, and, and I really hope we do see some uh, reform in that in the next three years. Okay, let's just go back to education um, a second. So, I, Rachel and I have one child. Miles has been in Madakana school, has been homeschooled for a period. He currently goes to Horizon College, um, which I think is one of the few places that there's the curriculum and the flexibility in, in a particular child's skill yes. quite well. Yes. Um, but I'm just having a problem getting my head around this whole what some of the social, um, you know, let's say we, we, you know, you're dealing with a, a family on the, on the breadline. Um, the only school that they can actually afford to reach locally is their local school. Mm. Um, so you give them that, the, you know, for that period of their childhood, you've, they've got their $18,000 a year, but in reality, they're going to go to that local school. No, not because um, our, the other part of our policy is that we would allow any school to be a partnership school. When you put choice back in parents' hands um, and you uh, allow schools to establish that are not state schools that can, can be run under the partnership model, they will respond to demand. So if parents uh, are looking for a school um, in a particular area, that, that demand will be filled. And a, a great example of it is, um, have you noticed how the proliferation of early childhood education centres? Mm. How many preschools we have? Why do we have so many of them? And, and as a parent of a preschooler, you have a massive choice of uh, preschools to go to because they're not locked into the same system of funding and uh, state-run, um, you know, prescribed education. Um, they, they're private businesses and they, they, get the, they get a share of government funding to run, but they all have a different offering. You know, there's the, they focus on different things to appeal to different um, families and, and their values. So imagine if you had that same amount of choice and, um, and throughout primary schooling and secondary schooling. There's no reason why we can't have it. Um, and, you know, that means that a family who is living in a low decile area are not locked into that zone. They're not post-code poverty, you know, 
that they they have a choice of sending their child to another school. Now the great thing about partnership schools is with their funding they have so much more flexibility with their funding. For, for a start, they don't have to own the land that the school's on, whereas a Ministry of Education provided school has to buy a large um, piece of land. I mean, that costs, obviously costs a lot. They have to provide um, a range of uh, activities for the, to, to fit the curriculum, you know, whether it be sports fields, courts, drama rooms, um, music rooms, computer rooms, you know, all those things, they, a suite of things that a state school has to provide, whereas partnership school can focus on a particular area because they're trying to attract children that might be um, um, energised and, and, you know, engage, more engaged at school if they didn't have to do sports, if, if they were allowed to do music and uh, drama. So you could have a... Um, you could have an arts academy. Um, you could have a school that appeals to kids who want to uh, do um, more manual things, you know, and a trades academy. You could have one that's, uh, that is more focused on sports. They all have to do the base, you know, the core subjects, mm. but, it, but they don't have to provide all those facilities because they're only specialising in a particular thing. So, um, and that is what keeps kids at school. If you looked at Vanguard Military Academy, the kids that went there came from all over Auckland because that school was able to provide, with that funding, bus transport for them, no matter where they lived, and breakfast and lunch. So, you know, this is the flexibility that being a partnership school gives uh, the schools and the choice that it provides for parents. Okay, okay. Um Let's move on to the other thing, which is obviously not affecting New Zealand, but the rest of the, the whole planet at the moment, which, which is obviously climate change, and we don't have to look very far from our own little coast to see what's going on with that. Now, one thing, I was just speaking to somebody down in the market, actually, now says, oh, I'm just going to go and meet Beth, and they said, oh, just ask to her to clarify their position on, um, you know, you took repealing the, the zero carbon bill and also... Um, bringing back the oil and, and, and gas mm -hmm. um, industries, etc. Um, surely both of those are counterintuitive to protecting and, and, and addressing climate change. Well, not necessarily, because already we're, we're importing 87% more coal since the, um, you know, in the, I can't remember, in, in recent years or the recent year or three year period, we're now importing coal because um, we don't have the prospect of finding more of our own oil and gas. Um, so, so, you know, that, that's, that's a bit of an own goal in that respect. Um, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be better just to try and promote the use of um, solar or other, other energy solutions? Well, I, I, absolutely, we can, you know, but who would you say promote it? Should the government promote it or should um, pri the private sector promote it? What is the most efficient, um, cost-effective way of delivering energy? Well, the private and sector, I'm assuming the private sector will probably be, you know, or, or, you know rightly profit-driven. And so... Yes, but yes, yes and, and nothing wrong with the profit motive, but in, um, in order to attract customers, they need to respond to customer demand. And, you know, we know that people are looking for greener technology. People want it, so they will put their they'll put their custom um, towards what they see as being more environmentally friendly options. But but do you think sometimes? And I think climate change is one of these classic examples, you know, because it's fairly undeniable. The well, you know, obviously there are people who do deny it, but it's it's fairly undeniable from a scientific perspective that we are facing some kind of existential threat long term. But because it is long term, it's not this emergency in our face. You know, it's not it's not something very tangible that you wake up to each morning. Um, that then sort of removes the, the the personal incentive to actively do something about that. You know, it's almost as if the the problem is so big and so global. Um, if we left it to, to to people privately making that decision and and, and private industry to support that then surely it, it, that's just going to compound the, the issue. I don't know. I, have a, I probably have a bit more faith in okay. humanity that, um, yeah. you know, people want the right thing and they, um, 
And they will, um, you know, we all see changes being made around us. We've made changes in our own households and our own personal um, shopping habits, um, you know, compared to where we were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So I think um, we do have the ability to uh, make make choices that are, that are good for the environment and want to, on the whole, want to. Um, the thing is, with, um, with climate change, you know, New Zealand is such a tiny contributor and one of the reasons we voted against the Zero Carbon Act is because of the, the economic uh, impacts it would have were totally disproportionate to our contribution. And we're, we are absolutely, you know, all for um, mitigating our contribution to, to climate change. But when you have um, other countries such as China that don't have, um, you know, environmental protections, we have to be really careful. If we make things too punitive, business will move offshore, and it will move off business and farming and food production will move offshore to countries where it can be produced cheaper because they don't have those restrictions in place, and that. Uh, creating much worse um, harm to the environment. So it's a bit of a balancing act. It's a real, you have to get the, that level, level right where you do enough and a bit more than we're contributing, but not, and, and also it's important to do that because of our trading, uh, you know, international trade. Our trading partners want us to take responsibility as well. They want to see that we are making efforts to reduce our carbon emissions. So we're going to respond to that, absolutely. But we shouldn't be doing so much that we tip, uh, tip the economy um, to offshore production and, uh, and start having to import um, our food, our steel, for example, from countries that are harming the environment with their practices. Mm, mm. No, no, and, and, and obviously it's difficult to argue with, with a lot of the, the rationale uh, uh, behind that. You know, in, an, in an ideal world, you know, we'd, we, you know, we drive an electric car, you know, we'd, we'd try and use as less packaging as possible, we'd, we, we all do our things. Um, but you don't have to walk around much to see a, a, a large, whether it's a large minority or even a small majority of the population who just seem oblivious to that. They don't seem to, people, people, it's in human nature sometimes that people don't want to take responsibility for something which isn't directly affecting them at that particular moment. You know, health or education or um, their taxes are obviously instant tangible things. Um, but you know, it, it's only over the long space of time, you know, you know, both you and I probably remember going on a, a car journey as a child and getting back home and then having to spend half an hour scraping insects and well, insects off the bonnet and the windscreen and stuff like that. Um, you don't do that anymore. That biodiversity, that, that has disappeared over the, my lifetime. I mean, even, um, I think half of the animal species on the planet have diminished since 1970, I think. From from, what I've, from 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 reading and listening to people like that. You, you may you may be right. I hadn't actually thought about that, but when I think about the state my car was in yesterday, I can assure you it was it was plastered with midge types and <laughs> But you get where I'm getting at. It, it's a it's a thing where there there are there are things in politics and life that affect us instant, instantly. And you know whether there's money in the bank account at the end of the month, whether a, a child's having a good time at school or achieving well whether our health is good, whether we can get a doctor's appointment, a hospital appointment. All of these things are very, very short-term, tangible things in our life, and we, we alter our behaviours to, to bring out the best incomes in that, best outcomes in that. Um, but when it comes to something so um, fluid and intangible mm. in some respects as, uh, uh, as climate change and damage to the environment, and th these, are, these are on different time spans, and I, I, I do wonder whether the the process of actually say, putting all of that power back into individual people's hands and not having more of a um, a long-term view on what needs to be done and most of the things that need to be done are fairly unpopular no matter what you do with the climate it's fairly unpopular you know take people's carrier bags away from the supermarket they'll moan about it until they get used to it you know and then lots of other things so you know, where I see myself aligning with a lot of what you're saying is, is from the libertarian and especially things like free speech and, and expression and, and, and certainly some of the education things you, you spoke about, mm. but certainly on the environment, 
it, it, do, it does concern it does concern me to a degree that something which is as big of an issue as that but we find it very difficult to see on a day-to-day -day basis and I think that's perhaps I suppose my point is perhaps there are certain things like that where that is a space for government yeah, I, I wouldn't say government doesn't have a role in that. Um, but again, if you go back to um, the basis of um, everything that a society needs, if people's immediate needs aren't being met, um, you know, shelter, uh, food, clothing, education, they are not going to be able to make time or, um, or have that space to look after the environment. And that's why we see the countries that are wealthy, that, that have a great, good, econ strong economies, uh, do have the money to look after their environment. So, um, I mean, you, you, look, you look to uh, countries, you know, India and China, that are terrible environmental practices and people living in poverty. Uh, I think that's the relationship there that you see between people's individual immediate needs and their regard for the environment. When you're having all your individual um, needs met, you have more time and more money to focus on your environment. And so that's where we need to get to raise the standard of living for everyone. And as a result of that, we'll have, you know, more people will be more observant and more interested and engaged in looking after the environment around them because they'll stop looking inwards at themselves and their immediate needs and start looking outwards. I hope you're right. <laughs> um, because I see plenty of examples where it just becomes a, I, I'm all right, Jack, my family's all right, Jack. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I don't think you'll ever get away from, you know, there'll always be a small percentage of people. Um, Do you think it's a small like Do you think it's a small percentage? I think, yeah, or whether it's, is it, are well, we all, supposedly, or are we all these Freudian monsters under the surface? Um, supposedly, I, uh, you know, this is what I hear from, from the outside, supposedly I belong to a party and mix, a mix in um, a circle of people that are all horribly selfish. Um, and yet I don't see that no, at all. No, no, in no. fact, I see the opposite. Yeah. I see people really passionate about making a difference and changing things for the better for this country. Um, and, and but with yet, climate change, it's not just for this country. You know, what we do here yes, will impact yes. millions of people in Bangladesh or whatever. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I'd say, we, you know, when I talked about our contribution, I'm not saying we, we, we pair things back to the minimum, but there's no point in us going, charging ahead and trying to lead the way and damaging our economy so badly that we do um, have, have has the unintended consequence of pushing production... Um, offshore, and so yeah, it's just getting that balance mm, right. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, yeah, that, 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 that's a fair point. And you know, you, we could go around, the, we could yeah, go around the yeah, houses right. forever and a day, picking mm. on on particular things, etc. Mm. Let's let, let's talk about um, one of the things I'd like to talk to you about because I think it aligns with, with a lot of what you've spoken about already is. People, are, you know, people's are becoming more polarized. I think regarding lots of lots of things in life, lots of opinions, and whether you know, you, whether you know, if you look across to America, for example, at moments or in the, the UK, whether it was the whole Brexit polarization, or or certainly lots of polarization from the outcome of the way different countries have handled COVID. Um, What's your thoughts on what's your thoughts on, on on the COVID response currently in New Zealand, and and, and would would ACT have handled that any differently? Um, look, I, I think I think we're very fortunate that we live on an island. <laughs> um, I think I think the the, the um, situation we're in, which is you know obviously far better than many other countries in the world, is mostly. Um, as a result of happenstance of where we sit in the world on an island, you know, with, with a large moat around us, more so than good management. Um, we, we knew about coronavirus or COVID-19 in around January, but it wasn't until March that we had our first lockdown and we closed the borders. We should have, we should have, we could have done that. We could have closed the borders a lot earlier and we wouldn't have had to have the devastating six week lockdown. We wouldn't have needed to do that. We wouldn't have had, had the outbreaks that um, that led to that. So, look, it's all hindsight's all very well. But we did we did make those statements in January and February. They are on, on record that we should have have closed the borders earlier. Um, we can't um, 
use lockdowns as the, as the only tool every time we get a, an outbreak. Um, we're going to have to uh, get a lot smarter about it. And what I find curious is that we had 105 days COVID-free. During that time, the government didn't put anything new in place to, to, uh, to manage the next um, outbreak. The only tool they had was another lockdown. And we should have been looking to countries like Taiwan, look at their, the way they do contact tracing, the way they do border security, um, detecting the virus, you know, temperature taking, um, because they've had, you know, for the size of that country, um, you know, a, a, a very, very good outcome. And there's a lot we can learn from them. What we've tended to do is uh, what the, I think the current government has done is used a bit of a stick and a bit of fear by comparing us to some of the worst um, countries in the world or even, you know, one of our nearest neighbours in Victoria, rather than comparing us to the best and saying, how can we continuously improve our COVID response, our public health response to COVID? Because I'm really unclear what, uh, what they've achieved um, in, in, impro in improved processes. All we have is a COVID tracing app and lockdowns. That is all we have, and yet there has been so much innovation offered to the government in terms of um, e-alarm, I think it's called, or the, the COVID card. Um, there are some really smart technologies out there. Why, why aren't we using them? We can't just keep going into another lockdown every time we have an outbreak. It's just too damaging to our economy. We do need to work out how we can kind of open up safely to the world um, because we need to get our... Um, high-end tourism back in, our international students, our seasonal workers, all of those groups of people can manage their, and pay for their own isolation as well. It doesn't have to be the government run. Um, so, you know, government shouldn't just be the, uh, you know, government should be the referee and not the player, but what we have at the moment is we still have only government run isolation and quarantine facilities um, and, 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 and a COVID tracing app that has, you know, dubious uptake. It may have um, initially, but I think the use of it's really, really falling away. So are we really ready for another outbreak? You know, I don't think we have too many tools in the box at the moment with the current government. Well, I think it, it, it's fair to sort of give credit where credit's due. The, the, you know, when there have been a cluster of outbreaks in New Zealand, the contract tracing and the effort that's gone into that has been fairly spectacular on a global level compared to global... Other I'm not aware that the COVID uh, contracting um, app was used to trace anyone no, no, until no, this Regardless of the app, yeah. Yeah, but I think the actual, you know, when a cluster was detected or the actual contact tracing... Well, I think that's fortunate of our um, size of our country and population and that and our, our two degrees of separation is that, um, you know, as I say, we, we're fortunate because we are an island... Um, we're already isolated and uh, we have a small population and people have been able to retrace their steps. Um, fairly but saying that though, Auckland's, Auckland is a comparable density to many of the world's cities. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. But, uh, you know, the thing is, we don't have any... Where, where, is the, where is the new tools for the next outbreak? What do we have? Um, you know, we should have a lot more up our sleeve and, and ready to go. Um, because... We, you know, what we need to do is look after those that are vulnerable, um, you know, that have uh, underlying conditions that can't be exposed to this virus. And the rest of us will need to learn how to get on with it because the rest of the world's going to do that. That's already happening in the rest of the world. The longer we don't uh, open ourselves up to the rest of the world for, for trade, um, the more difficult it's going to be. It's actually going to become more and more difficult. I guess, you know, being a bit of a lefty, <laughs> being a bit of a lefty, I, go, I guess I look at the world at the moment. And also, you know, I look back in history, I'm a great fan of reading history, and I wish more people would go back to Mesopotamia or Babylonian times and look at how the world has changed since then, and also how it goes in cycles. You know, things mm. tend, you know history mm. does tend to repeat itself in some cases, unfortunately. Um, and it just feels like things fundamentally need to change to me. It feels to me, and some of this may be you know, a libertarian approach to, to things, but it, it feels that some of the things were, some of the things and issues that, that were challenging us globally at the minute are so huge that it involves, it would involve a huge 
shift in paradigm, almost at a time of an epoch change, if you like. You know, we have massively growing inequality around, not just in New Zealand, but around the world. We have massively growing climate change around the world, not just in New Zealand. We have huge global corporations not paying a penny in taxes in countries, etc. And to me, it almost feels like there needs to be a, a huge shake-up, and it's probably an uncomfortable shake-up. But, it, you know, you look back in history, you know, whether it's, whether it's the ancient Greeks or whether it's the Roman Empire or even the British Empire, um, you know, most empires tended to last 250 years, probably, in their peak. Um, certainly looking at America at the moment, you have to question, is this an empire coming to the end of its peak? Mm. Uh, and are we now looking at China and Asia coming to their moment in history? But it just feels like we're just trying to make small changes. We're trying to do this, we're trying to do that. And also, I suppose my concern is when you, if you turn over lots of things in life to control to the individual, and you can't argue that that's a great thing, but it just, con it just concerns me that the, the bigger picture stuff is a casualty of that because fundamentally human beings are selfish. You know, fundamentally, and that's that's quite that's quite a, that's quite a prickly controversial statement. Well, they you, you may be correct, but um, because they are, it creates um, it creates competition for catering to their needs, and that's where we get advancement and innovation. Absolutely, mm. but then sometimes, I mean, there's a difference between. Um, there's a difference between uh, certain types of competition and competition for profit. So for me, it's almost like um, if we give everything over to the to the to the private sector, you know, what's a great example? So in, in so in America at the moment, you know, the whole you've got prison systems which are which are run for profit, mm -hmm. and we have prison we have uh, private prison companies who are suing the states because the states aren't sending them enough prisoners because crime has fallen. So surely there must be, we have to draw a line somewhere between um, complete free choice and oh, private, I, private sector. I don't think we're advocating for, you know, um, <laughs> carte blanche, uh, you know, removal of all regulations. You know, yeah. there is a role for government. There is a role for government. And that's to set the rules and the policies. Uh, and then allow everyone to get on with it. Um, and if they need to change those from time to time, they will. And that's why you have, you know, have a parliament. That's, that, that is the correct role of government. But, you know, the, the profit motive is, um, is really important. You know, profit isn't, shouldn't be a dirty word. You know, profit is what... Um, but it should be if it's at the cost of a, of a society in general. Or not. I'm, I'm, I am playing devil's advocate here a little bit, by the way. Um, I, I am trying to poke you a little bit. With yeah, the well, I mean, there, 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 I mean, there, are, there, there are areas around health, education, justice, that government certainly needs to um, be the, the referee in and mm -hmm. set, set the rules. But that doesn't mean there can't be a range of um, services uh, that are both public and private too. Uh, and, and, in fact, they'd be a good, good kind of uh, counter you know, a baseline, you know, you know, perhaps a public mm. run system here and see how does this private mm. one um, run uh, in comparison? Is it more efficient, less efficient? Um, and, you know, and there are like, good examples of, of, of the private sector running stuff with, with uh, the, the correct sort of um, framework in place that can be checked and due diligence took, taken place mm. and government... Uh, regulation, etc. I guess. So I suppose there is a middle ground. Yeah. But I just wanted to sort of poke you and see how far the libertarian. <laughs> oh well, I'm not an extreme. I'm not a pure yeah. libertarian. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a pure libertarian. I always say that um, libertarianism is something that I um, I identify with, uh, but it's not it's not something that I I follow as a as a you know like a religion. You know. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> and I think you've you've raised a few interesting areas where. You know, it makes perfect sense. And house building and responsibility, you know, uh, are, 
again, I encourage anybody listening to these podcasts to always check what I say because I by no means write all the time. But from my, you know, I remember um, a friend uh, knowing somebody who was building their own house in France or something, and it was a point of look, it's your land, you build whatever you like. Yeah. If it falls down on your head, it's your own bloody fault. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. Which is an extreme. Um, As was that house that we built when we were 21. Yeah, and and so Rachel and I, you know, we come from families of builders. We're quite capable of building our own house, but it's prohibitive to a large degree. Yeah. Um, But it's not just the policies. Actually, it's not just the policies that make that prohibitive. It's... uh, it's actually lots to do with the building industry within New Zealand. It's, it's, cost, it's, it's, materials. it's cost of materials. And it is, it is, there's a bit of protectionism and ring fencing going on. Well, but, but there's the opposite going on. You know, currently there are high-tech green materials being used in countries like Singapore and Japan, which mm-hmm. our current Resource Management Act and Building Act yeah. do not um, permit to be used in New Zealand. So, you know, right. it's a double-edged sword. Oh no, absolutely. Mm. And so it's 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 again being a bit of a lefty. I, I'm I'm for everything which takes bureaucracy as well, as long as it's not a cost to the fabric of society. I guess. Mm. And I think it doesn't matter what your political standpoint is. That's yes, a, that's, a fair, that's on, a fair yeah. that's a fair yeah. comment. Um, but I mean, you, you you know, looking forward, you know, five years in New Zealand. What's What's your vision for that? What, where do you hope we find ourselves in five years with, with, with economy and industry? You know, do, we just, do we get rid of the zero carbon, let the farmers carry on farming the way they are? Or do we need to change something fundamentally? Oh, well, look, you brought up the farmers. I mean, I think the farmers are doing a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a farmer myself. Yeah. Um, I'm you know, still connected to a lot of farming communities. And I really think they're getting a bad rap for no... Uh, for no good reason. They are the most um, environmentally conscious group of people because their livelihood depends on it. And they are, they have fenced something like 54,000 uh, kilometres of riparian margin and no one's ever, you know, acknowledges that. Voluntarily, they didn't need any anyone standing over them with a stick. They didn't need the, you know the wagging finger of government to get mm. them to do that. They want to do that. Um, so I think that the, the impact that farmers are having is, um, is overblown, and that's because also some of the uh, measures um, are debatable, whether things like methane should be included. Um, pasture grass isn't counted as, um, you know, as, a, as a carbon sink when it should be. It's not factored into the, um, you know, the carbon... Um, Footprint that they that they create that that they, that grass actually absorbs carbon, wool absorbs or stores carbon. So you know this this I think the farmers are getting a bit much of a bad rap, and I think we need our farmers more than ever at the moment. Uh, it's as our you know primary producers, especially when we don't have tourism. Um, but where would I see us in five years' time? I would like to see uh, the cost of housing um, relative to the median income um, have dropped considerably um, so that more people have, have access to homes, whether it's renting or buying. Um, I'd like to see, uh, obviously, the impact of this pandemic having been um, mitigated through uh, great um, education outcomes and job opportunities, uh, job creation, uh, better economy that um, is, you know, gets off its feet again quite quickly to create new jobs. Um, and, um, I, you know, I obviously like to see the environment cleaned up a bit and, um, and in New Zealand, you know, leading the world, um, not in terms of... of uh, Outperforming uh, the world on on our um, action against climate change and, and how much and our reduction in emissions, but leading the world in being um, seen as as what we actually are as a clean, uh, sustainable producer, and that our our product, our primary products, will attract you know a premium for that reason. Mm-hmm. Beth, is there anything else you want to have a chat about? Because uh, you know we've been. We've been going for. I know your time is fairly precious. Is there anything we've missed, or anything that you think, from a policy perspective, that's particularly interesting from from X point of view at the moment? Uh, 
Well, I think um, ACT's immediate focus is um, the pandemic response and COVID recovery. Um, you know, traditionally, we've campaigned on things like housing and education. Um, those things are still important because we still haven't got those right. Um, but I think the immediate concern that's in front of most people's minds is our economic recovery. Um, there's going to still, we're going to see more job losses. We're going to see more businesses fold um, probably before the end of the year, you know, as soon as this uh, wage subsidy comes off. And um, we really need to, to uh, make some hard decisions about how we're going to open our borders, Ken. And, you know, we, had, we have to have that conversation. And also what we're going to do about the debt. You know, it's just a number to a lot of people, $140 billion, um, But it does have to be, the balance sheet has to be corrected at some point. And, and until that time, we're going to be spending $4 billion a year just on the interest on it. And that's if we don't borrow any more than we have already. And $4 billion could be could be being used to uh, improve education outcomes, uh, health outcomes, for example. So we really have to uh, deal with that. Uh, work out how we're going to control this debt, not borrow any more, how we're going to start paying it off, and uh, how we're going to get the economy going again. Because it goes back to what I said earlier when people are having their immediate needs met, uh, which an economy provides, um, then, they can, then they can look towards, uh, look more outwards towards improving environmental outcomes, which is what we all want as well. Beth, thanks very much for joining me. That was a really interesting chat. I think I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it was good. <laughs>